BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, it was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, the number of Americans who say they belong to a church or mosque or synagogue is declining. According to a recent Pew survey, roughly 30% of U.S. adults say they do not have a religious affiliation. That's up from 19% a decade ago. This hour, we talk with a Pew researcher and religion experts about the survey findings and what they mean for organized religion in the country. And we want to hear from you. Have you recently left or considered leaving organized religion? Join us. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. According to a Pew Research survey last month, the group commonly referred to as nuns, that's N-O-N-E-S, or people who are not religiously affiliated or are atheists or agnostics, they now make up roughly 30% of the U.S. population. To be clear, the majority of the U.S. still identifies as Christian, some 63%, but that's still a sharp decline from a decade ago when 75% self-identified as Christian. For more on the survey findings, we're joined by Gregory A. Smith, Associate Director of Research at the Pew Research Center, lead author of the Pew Research Center survey on the religious composition of the U.S. Gregory Smith, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So you found that the religiously unaffiliated share of the public is six percentage points higher than it was five years ago and 10 percent higher than a decade ago. So it sounds like you've been seeing this trend for a while. I'm curious, though, if the size of the jump surprised you. You're right. This is a this is the continuation of a trend that's been underway for for a very long time, several decades at least. Um, these secularizing shifts that we have seen in American life show no signs of changing, no signs of even slowing. I think that's very striking. You know, the 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 size, the magnitude of these religious changes that have occurred over the last few decades really are quite significant. 
And, and this group that I mentioned earlier, the nuns, the atheists, agnostics, or, or people who describe themselves as nothing in particular when you ask them about religious affiliation, what do they say about why they are rejecting organized religion? Well, you know, there's a few things that we can point to in terms of what's behind these trends. I think the first thing to note, the first thing to be aware of, is that these trends are very broad-based. They're happening among lots of groups in our society. These secularizing shifts are occurring among men and women. They're occurring among college graduates and those with less education. They're, they're occurring among white Americans, Black Americans, Hispanic Americans, and others. They're happening in every region of the country. So these changes are very broad-based. All that said, there's one really important factor behind these trends, and that's generational replacement. That is to say, a big part of what's happening is you have older cohorts of Americans who by and large, on average, are quite religious. And as they age and as they begin to pass away, they are being replaced by a new generation of young adults that is coming into adulthood with far lower levels of attachment to religion than their parents and grandparents before them. I think that factor in understanding these trends really can't be overstated. Can I ask you how much of the decline that you're seeing might have something to do with reporting. And I ask this because I have read that people feel that in the past, people were more reluctant to say if they were not religious, it was less socially acceptable. Do you think that that plays a role? It's a great question. Um, that could be part of what's going on. I say that for a couple of reasons. Probably most importantly, we know that for a long time, there has been a sort of stigma in American society attached to being non-religious, especially attached to being a non-believer. Um, that stigma has been lessening over time. It's going away. It's still there, but it's going away. So, so in that sense, yes, you're absolutely right. It may be a little easier for people to tell us in surveys, for people to come out publicly, so to speak, and say that they are not religious. So that could be part of it. And it's something we've wondered about for a long time. However, I definitely don't think that's the whole story. And I say that because we see evidence of secularization, not just in terms of people's religious identity, not just in terms of the way people describe themselves publicly. We also see it in, in the way people describe their religious beliefs and practices. There's one major trend in this in this latest data I would point to, and that's how many people say they pray regularly. In these most recent data, fewer than half of American adults tell us that they pray every day. 45% said they say they pray every day. That's down 13 percentage points since we first asked this question about 15 years ago. When we first asked this question back in 2007, 58% said they pray every day. Today, that number stands at 45%. So is part of the story a shift in the way people describe themselves, partly in response to these societal trends and what's acceptable and what's not? Perhaps, but I definitely don't think that's the whole story. Mm. We're talking with Gregory Smith, Associate Director of Research at the Pew Research Center, and we're talking about the rise of Americans who say they do not have a religious affiliation. And you, our listeners, are invited to join the conversation. Are you what is called a nun, an N-O-N-E? Share your thoughts on why, or maybe you've recently left or considered leaving organized religion. You also may be among the seven, or, seven in ten or so who, who 
are religious and, and feel like they're the only one of their friends who still is, you can share your thoughts at 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. You can get in touch with Twitter or Facebook. You can get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum, as well as on Instagram, or email us, forum at kqed.org. I um, wanted to dig into the decline in Christianity a little bit. Um, According to the survey, there's been basically like a 12% decline over the last decade in people who identify as Christian. And I should note that Christian includes in your survey Protestants, Catholics, members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and, and Orthodox Christians. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about what groups within the Christian diaspora are, are most impacted. Yes, I can. You know, the, I think the first thing to note when we think about Christianity is is something you mentioned at the top of the show, and that is we should remember that most people in the United States are, in fact, Christians. They are people who say, who describe themselves as Christians when we ask them about their religion. That that hasn't changed. But the share of Americans who describe themselves as Christians is declining very sharply. When we look within Christianity, it's clear that those declines especially the recent declines, are, 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 are most apparent within Protestantism. The share of Americans who say they are Protestants today stands at 40%. That's down 10 percentage points in just the last decade. You know, there, there, there was a time in the not-too-distant past where when you think about religion in the United States, you think of a country that's mostly composed of Protestants, a majority Protestant country. That is simply not the case anymore. So that's where we see the 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 most evidence of decline. The next the next the other largest Christian group is Catholicism of course and the Catholic share of the population especially in comparison with Protestantism, the Catholic share of the population has been quite stable in recent years. There was a little bit of a downturn in the share who identified as Catholic um, about 10 or 15 years ago between like 2007 and 2014. But over the last five or six years, the Catholic share of the population has been very stable, and it currently stands at 21%. About one in five American adults describe themselves as Catholics. And what do you think is behind that stability? Uh, well, there's a few things, especially that are interesting about when we think about Catholicism. I th the first thing I think of is immigration. You know, in some of our surveys, not this most recent one, but in some of our surveys, we've asked people questions not just about their current religion, but also about the religion in which they were raised. And by doing that, we can see which religious groups do uh, a better job and which don't do so well in terms of hanging on to their adherence, retaining their childhood members. And when we look at the data that way, we see very clearly that Catholicism has lost more people through religious switching than any other religious group we're able to examine. In fact, there are something like six former Catholics in the United States, hmm. six, six people who say they were raised Catholic and no longer identify as such for every one convert to Catholicism. That six to one ratio of people leaving to joining is just sort of, it's, it's unique to Catholicism. We don't see it anywhere else. How then can we... How can we reconcile that, the fact that Catholics lose more people through switching than any other group, with the fact that the Catholic share of the population is pretty stable? Well, there I think we have to point to immigration. Uh, we know that there are a lot of immigrants to the United States, especially from, from Latin America. We know that, that those immigrants are 
disproportionately Catholic. They're, they, more of them are Catholic than among the US-born population. And so immigration to the United States has helped to sort of reinforce the Catholic share and the Christian share of the population more broadly. We just have a couple of minutes left with you, uh, Greg, and I, I did want to ask you about trends you noticed among evangelicals. Yes, people are very interested in evangelical Christianity in the United States, especially when we think about religion and politics. What's happening with evangelical Protestants? Well, evangelical Protestants, like Protestants as a whole, are declining as a share of the population. However, it's important to understand why that's happening. Evangelical Protestants are declining as a share of the population because Protestants as a whole are declining as a share of the population. So the pool from which they're drawn is, is shrinking. They are not declining because fewer Protestants are are identifying as born-again or evangelical Christians. In fact, among Protestants, the share who currently describe themselves as born-again or evangelical Christians is as high, perhaps even a tick higher, than it has at than it's been at any point in the recent past. It's just that there's fewer Protestants to draw on. That pool has shrunk. So evangelicals are declining as a share of the population, but it's very much a part of these broader trends that's not unique to evangelicalism. Do you think there's any link to political polarization around that? It's very possible. A lot of scholars point to politics as one of the key factors in understanding these religious trends. They say, they argue persuasively that as religion came to be associated with political conservatism, with right-wing politics, at least in the popular imagination, over the last several decades. Then part of what happened is you had people who didn't share those politics say effectively, if, if being religious means being politically conservative, then I guess I'm not religious. And, they, and, and these scholars point to that as one factor behind the growth of the religious nuns. Our, our survey data can't can't prove that, can't prove causality, can't quantify, uh, you know, 25 or 30 percent of the growth is, is attributable to that fact. But we do know for sure that religious nuns are among the most socially liberal and democratic groups in the population. So the data are very consistent with that line of thought. Gregory A. Smith, Associate Director of Research at the Pew Research Center and lead author of the Pew Research Center survey on the religious composition of the U.S. Thanks so much for talking with us. Thank you again for having me. Great to be with you. And listeners, that's our topic, the religious composition of the U.S. Tell us about your relationship with religion after the break. More Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. The fastest growing group in surveys asking Americans about their religious identity is the group describing themselves as nuns, atheists, agnostics, or nothing in particular, N-O-N-E-S's. And uh, you, our listeners, are invited to join the conversation. Are you a nun? You can share your thoughts on that, or have you recently left or considered leaving organized religion? You can also share if you are religious and whether or not you feel like uh, you find yourself as one of the few. 866-733-6786 is the number. 866-733-6786. You can get in touch on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram at KQED Forum. You can email us, forum at kqed.org. And this listener writes, I grew up in Mississippi as a Southern Baptist, but left the church when I was in college. I'm an inclusive individual who believes in the rights of others, and I felt the church put too much effort into trying to discriminate. They also started putting money and efforts into electing conservative candidates, and I was disturbed that there was a mix of religion and politics. I just do not see a purpose to religion in today's society and actually see it as a negative influence. Well, on the line now is Siobhan Taylor, and uh, Siobhan is a radio and podcast producer, also identifies as an atheist, based in Los Angeles. Siobhan, thanks so much for coming on. For having me. So I understand that you became an atheist after being a member of the Pentecostal Church in Los Angeles. I'm curious first, what made you decide to leave the church? Well, specifically, it was Pentecostal in religion, but it was being run as a cult. And it was a cult. It was a prophet. We had to obey and, you know, get permission from to do things. And as I, when I left, um, I was actually in college and I moved out of my house. So that was part of it. And also being exposed to new ideas and new ways of thinking. Also, I made a lot more friends that were part of the LGBTQ community. And I couldn't reconcile that with the stuff that I was being taught growing up. So it was multiple things. Can I ask you what it was like for you after you left? Was it difficult? Oh, it was definitely difficult. Um, in fact, when I left my church, I didn't even leave Christianity. I left and went to another Christian space. And that probably opened my mind up a lot because you were allowed to listen to music that wasn't religious. You could wear pants, you know, it was a different thing. Hmm. Um, but I ended up after that realizing this still wasn't, I couldn't believe anymore. I just didn't have the belief. There was no evidence. And the more I realized there was no evidence, the scarier it got. In fact, I got really scared because it was like, I was taught my whole life, you do good, you go to heaven, you do bad, you go to hell. What if there's still a hell and I'm wrong? So it's a definite um, challenge mentally. Sure. What ultimately prompted your decision to identify as atheist? Uh, actually, I found a group of atheists um, or a group of skeptics called Black Skeptics. Um, it's an organization here in L.A., and when I found them, it was my first time being around other Black people who were also um, questioning religion or weren't religious at all. Mm -hmm. So being in that space helped me become more open and also gave me the language because I didn't even really know what atheism was. Um, now I have the language and it scares people because they think atheist means you worship the devil for some reason. <laughs> but um, I just don't have a belief in anything because there's nothing to prove that there is. It's just mythological stories. You're reminding me of a quote that I came across when I was preparing for this segment from a, a founder of Black Nonbelievers in Atlanta, who said that one thing his members face is, is actually ostracism um, when they become atheist. Was that your experience at all? or Not really, um, mostly because I'm in LA. Atlanta is still the Bible Belt. So being in Los Angeles is a little bit different because you can still find like-minded people. And in my family, um, I had kind of separated from the family that 
was religious, which is my father. So that mm-hmm. kind of helped. But um, my other family members, even though they're still religious or whatever, they just said they love me anyway. Well, in fact, the, one of the matriarchs said, um, I love you even if you, you, you can worship the devil, but I still love you, you know? So, <laughs> so no, I actually didn't have that experience. Do you consider yourself as having a spiritual practice now? Uh, as a practice, not really. I feel, I, I don't see spirituality as supernatural. Um, I think we attribute things to supernatural beings and things like that because we don't know. But the more I've learned about the brain and the body and the connection to nature, that's been more so my spirituality. So um, my spirituality is connection with other people, connection with nature, looking at flowers, um, things like that. Well, Siobhan, thanks so much for sharing your experience. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Siobhan Taylor is a radio and podcast producer based in Los Angeles. And I have to bring a couple more people into the conversation now. Um, Ibu Patel is founder and executive director of Interfaith Youth Corps. Ibu, thanks so much for being with us on Forum. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much, Mina. Also with us is Elizabeth Drescher, adjunct associate professor of religious studies at Santa Clara University, also the author of Choosing Our Religion, The Spiritual Lives of America's Nuns. Thanks so much for being with us as well, Dr. Drescher. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you. And so, Elizabeth Rusher, one of the things that I was reminded of in listening to Siobhan is that when you were doing research for your book, you had come across uh, people who became nuns in part because, or N-O-N-E-S, I feel like I have to say that a lot on the radio, um, mm-hmm. in part because they had had negative experiences um, in a religious tradition. But what were some of the other reasons uh, that you came across? And do you think they're still consistent with some of the reasons we're continuing to see this decline? Um, yeah, there are, there are a range of reasons. As in Siobhan's case, there are plenty of people who come on new information, new relationships, and come to see the religious tradition that they were raised in as Um, inaccurate, incorrect. They often feel lied to or uh, betrayed in terms of of getting a correct sense of reality. And um, for um, a large slice of people who are religiously unaffiliated, um, they have particularly negative um, experiences, you know, having to get permission to to do things from um, an elder or a prophet um, is not a good time for most people. And, and there are other kinds of negative experiences. But what I found when I talked with uh, nuns and ONESs um, across the country is that that was one slice. Um, um, and that was largely among more conservative, um, evangelical Um, Mormon, uh, Pentecostal, those kinds of traditions where there were particular negative experiences. Um, But there was another set among um, mainline Protestants, um, for example, and more progressive Catholics. Um, And, you know, we know that those are really the drivers of the change in religious affiliation um, in in those groups, where, um, you know, the people I talked to said, you know, nothing horrible or bad happened. In fact, I really loved my youth group and the the priest or the pastor was super awesome. I just got it. I was kind of over it. I grew up, I grew out of it. I didn't need to do that um, every week. So there were, there were those folks who were just kind of over it and saw being non-religious as 
a part of maturing, a uh, part of uh, becoming an adult and leaving behind kind of a childish need to reinforce certain kinds of values. Um, so, you know, that was certainly a, um, a part of the, the puzzle as well. Um, there were other people who were really actively hurt, either, you know, for some women in Catholicism or LGBTQ people um, in evangelical traditions or in Catholicism who felt very rejected. So that sense of either being angry or bored or hurt certainly came um, through. Um, at the time I was researching the book, um, you know, um, Gen Z wasn't really about then. And so I didn't talk with a lot of them, but they're my students. And what mm. I'm, I've learned from then in the last five or so years is that lots of them have been raised by non-religious parents. And that's a different um, phenomenon than we would have seen 10 years ago. The people I um, talked with had generally been raised in a religious tradition and left that religious tradition and took some resources from that tradition with them, even if they used them differently and didn't believe in doctrinal teaching. Um, now, and I haven't done formal research on this, but among my undergraduates at Santa Clara, what I'm seeing are lots of, um, of young adults who um, never had exposure to religion. And I think we're going to see that, of course, as the, as the um, you know, trend toward being non-religious continues, there are going to be lots more parents who um, are not exposing their kids to religion at all. So I think that's a new feature. Hmm. Ibu Patel, I'd love to get your thoughts on what you think is behind the decline uh, in people who are identifying as religiously yeah. affiliated. Yeah, thank you so much, Mina. Uh, fascinating to listen to you, Elizabeth, and earlier to Greg and Siobhan. So I, I think it's a lot of things. I certainly think that it's a reaction to uh, um, conservative politics that's been established you know, in, in, uh, in the sociological literature through people like uh, Robert Putnam and David Campbell. I also think that we're in a period in American history where people are just not joining things. And so uh, part of this is about belief. Part of this is simply about not belonging to things. Uh, and people ought to be free to be who they are and do and do what they like to do. You know, I, I don't think of Siobhan as a nun. I think her think of her as something, right? Siobhan, there's a set of things that are important in Siobhan's life, and she's pursuing those things. And I think that's powerful. I think it ought to be dignified. At the same time, I think that we ought to recognize the importance of religion in our society. Uh, it is not only the fountainhead of negative things. Uh, one of the exercises I like to do with audiences at my nonprofit, Interfaith Youth Corps, is Imagine if all of the faith-based organizations in your city were to disappear overnight, what would be gone in the morning? And a recent study came out that showed that 40% of the social services in San Francisco, right, liberal coastal San Francisco, 40% of your social services are provided by faith-based groups. Imagine if that's all gone in the morning, right? Who is going to make up for that? And, and in my mind, we ought to be uh, we ought to marvel at a society in which religious communities create institutions which serve all of us. That doesn't mean we have to belong to a religious group, but to dignify the role of religion in our society, I think is important. Do you think it should be religious institutions that we rely upon for that, though? I would reframe the question, Mina. I would say, why is it that religious institutions have created the hospitals, the schools, 
the social service agencies, the community centers that serve everybody. There are a lot of societies in which a religious group creates a social service center only for its community. In America, there are 230 Catholic colleges and universities across the nation, including several wonderful ones in the Bay Area, right? The University of San Francisco, St. Mary's. Virtually none of these Catholic colleges and universities only admit Catholics. My father, an Ismaili Muslim immigrant from India, uh, came to this country and brought his family because a university founded by French Catholic priests in 1842, decided that it was part of their Catholic commitment to admit students from all religious and national backgrounds. I think that that's marvelous. I think that's remarkable. I think that that is part of the definition of a diverse democracy. I think your point about institutions is correct. We have done some reporting on hospitals with religious affiliations having some restrictions in terms of providing medical care. But I do get your point about just the role that it plays in terms of social services in society. And in fact, there have been a couple of listeners who've weighed in about how they have turned to religion, especially during this time. A listener writes, I've actually rejoined a church this year. I'm a 35-year-old, so I may be a blip in the overall trend of non-religious millennials, but after family losses during COVID and the grieving process and the drive to do community-supportive work, returning to the church has been a comfort and a way to honor my family elders. And Sally writes, COVID brought me the gift of joining a synagogue, the Zoom community and activities, weekly Torah study, meditation and and study, end-of-life group, for example, brought me closer to my congregation, to individual members, and to the clergy. Membership and participation have sustained me through humor, wisdom, fellowship, mourning, and celebration. I I imagine you have a quick uh, reaction to that, Ibu Patel. I mean, I think that that's powerful. Those are powerful individual stories. And uh, religious identity plays a really important role in the lives of many individuals and many demographic groups. And so in an earlier Pew study, for example, one done some years ago, uh, the question was who in America views religion as very important in their lives. And it turns out that uh, uh, 75% of African-Americans and two thirds of the Hispanic Latinx population said that religion was very important in their lives. And it feels to me that part of living in a diverse democracy is is having a, a sympathetic, welcoming, welcoming view to the things that matter to our fellow citizens and Americans. And if faith is really important in the lives of African-Americans, I'm going to pay attention. If faith is really important in the lives of immigrants, as uh, Greg was saying earlier, that is who is replenishing Catholic churches. I mean, imagine you're an immigrant from, uh, from Brazil or you're an immigrant from Mexico and the place where you find home and comfort and welcoming and belonging as a Catholic church, I'm going to dignify that. It feels really important to me to do so. Well, David writes, thank God there is less religion. Faith, by definition, rejects logic and reason and traditions are great. But as we've seen, faith compels the faithful to enforce their morals on others. No thanks. Let me go to Sid in San Francisco. Hi, Sid. Thanks for calling in. Hi. Um, so I am also an immigrant. Um, I grew up in India. And, um, you know, you see, um, I, I 
I'm not, I'm, I'm an atheist now. You can call me that nun thing. I just heard that word first time. But um, I see that um, women on their periods are not able to enter the temples. I see here what happens and uh, happened in Catholic churches to children. And I see the Orthodox Judaism. It just uh, makes me cringe. And evangelicals um, in Trump era, what was happening um, in a political arena, um, Trump, who absolutely did not believe in, uh, you know, it wasn't religious at all. And then all of a sudden, all of these evangelicals um, supporting him. When I see all of that, it makes me um, mm. get away from um, religion. And what um, Mr. Patel was saying, I think that's where the state um, separation of church and state comes in. Um, even though um, um, uh, some Catholic or some religious um, institutions are helping um, everybody, Still, um, they don't have to be religious. They could be just humans. Uh, well, Sid, thanks. That's all I wanted to say. Thanks for sharing your perspective. I appreciate it, and you're echoing some of the things that uh, Greg and also. Uh, Elizabeth Drescher were saying. Let me see if I can just get one more call before the break. Let me go to Maggie in Alameda. Hi, Maggie. Hi. Go right ahead. Um, so I am uh, I am a daughter of a Presbyterian pastor. I grew up in rural Pennsylvania, and he has seen his um, local presbytery. You know, the number of pastors is now below 50 percent what it was when we were growing up. And um, he is a retired pastor now, is, is um, actually busier than he's ever been because they can't attract young talent to the area to minister to the populations because um, – there's just not a, an incentive for people to build families in these rural communities. And also um, the populations themselves are, are, are older. Almost all of the congregations are like uh, individuals who are 60 plus um, families aren't coming to the church. And I now um, I have my own young family. My brother, sister and I all would identify as nuns, I believe, which is like a point of tension with my father for sure. <sighs> Um, but, but something that I'm wrestling with for all of these reasons, because, um, you know, I, I grew up in the church and it was a huge part of my life and my identity and, and from like a community and social justice perspective. And then I think one of the reasons I've moved away from it is because of all the complications the other caller was just naming. Um, but also I miss and crave that spirit of community in a way to just, just connect and also, and give back to my local community. So I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to present that for my own children now. And so it's just a, a complex issue that I'm working through and in a, on a very personal level as well. Yeah. Well, well, thanks for sharing that. And I bet there are a lot of people who feel similarly or are having similar things that they're grappling with. We're talking about how Americans are becoming less religiously affiliated, and there is not a singular explanation. Clearly, we're exploring some of those complexities, and we'll do more of that after the break. You can join us at 866-733-6786. You can email us, forum at kqed.org, or you can post your thoughts on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. More of Forum after the break. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com.
We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about the rise of Americans who say they do not have a religious affiliation with Ibu Patel, founder and executive director of Interfaith Youth Corps. His forthcoming book is We Need to Build, Field Notes for Diverse Democracy, and his other books include Acts of Faith, The Story of an American Muslim. Elizabeth Drescher is also with us, adjunct associate professor of religious studies at Santa Clara University, author of Choosing Our Religion, The Spiritual Lives of America's Nuns. And on the line now we have Sami al Al-Assadi, a first-year student at Arizona State University, Barrett Honors College. Sami Al-Assadi, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So I understand you had a Muslim upbringing and you've decided to leave that faith and embrace a secular identity. What triggered that transition for you? Yeah, so my parents are war refugees from Bosnia and Iraq, and they had some really, really troubling experiences with faith. For example, in Bosnia, there was a genocide waged against Muslims. Um, And in Iraq, there was a schism between Shias and Sunnis. And as a result of this, there was justification for violence that had ripples of effect and a lot of killing, a lot of blood. And the more I reflected on that, the more I realized that arriving at a secular identity that really emphasizes this kind of commitment to alleviating the suffering of others was a better kind of approach to my understanding of the world than a religious one. And as a result of my parents' experiences with war and religious violence, I came and arrived at the secular identity through reason, through um, a lot of reflection on what really matters to me. Wow. So their experiences really did affect your decision. I, I, I understand just to become secular, your parents as refugees and that type of experience. Were there other reasons that you also made that transition? Yes, I also have an LGBTQ plus identity. I identify as gay. And of course, in my parents' country, such an admission can get me killed. So I did not feel welcomed in the religious community for those reasons. Um, And partly because of the aforementioned one and this one as well. I felt more comfortable with a secular identity than a religious one. You know, I was struck by Maggie's comment before the break, and I've heard religious people say that they value the community that belonging to a faith brings them. I'm curious how you think about this and and the ways that you find community. It's such an important issue because a lot of times when people leave their faith, they have this big empty gap in their lives. And, you know, with the congregation, you have friends, you have support, you have neighbors. And sometimes with a secular identity, you may not have that as readily. And I rely on organizations like the Secular Student Alliance, which connects college students with non-religious backgrounds together, or the Freedom From Religion Foundation, or the Recovering From Religion Foundation. I feel like it's such important um, for secular people to connect with each other and try to supply that community that you may not have in your lives if you're not part of a religion. That is something we can replicate on our own. 
Well, Sammy, really appreciate you talking with us. I know we pulled you out of uh, your in-between classes right now, so it means a lot. Thank you. Sammy L. Asadi, a first-year student at Arizona State University and Barrett Honors College. And we've got comments coming in. For example, Kay writes, as a nun, I find that what is most striking about the changing religious demographics, i.e. the increasing secularization of the public, is just how much the Supreme Court has gone in the opposite direction as regards recognizing and valuing a separation of religion and government, the separation of church and state referred to by the founders. I, I've heard a little bit of this, uh, Elizabeth Dreschner. I'm curious to get your reaction to what Kay is saying here. Um, well, I, I think that, um, you know, um, Ibu Patel talked um, uh, about, you know, this close tie sometimes between religion and politics that's certainly been part of the American story, um, whether that's factually, historically true all the time or not, there's, there is the structure, at least um, politically and, and religiously, of some kind of barrier um, between um, religion and political life. But we know that um, that's breached all the time. Um, one of the previous um, callers talked about the prior presidential administration and the way in which they leveraged religion for political gain. So certainly um, that, that barrier is pretty fluid. We see it playing out in the Supreme Court um, decisions that are coming up um, with regard to, to um, Roe v. Wade and, and other topics. And I think that is, generally speaking, a, a big frustration for lots of of religiously unaffiliated uh, people, that that is a thing that pushes people away. But I did want to note that, you know, even along with this shift away from organized institutional religion, um, people still, um, and Sammy talked about this, engage ethically in the world, um, right? They they are still um, attentive to nurturing the human spirit, to um, being involved in care for the earth and social justice movements like the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, they're, they're not belonging in the kinds of uh, formal institutional ways that may have happened in the past, but they do still have modes of belonging and they still have human needs to mark life transitions, to um, deal with loss, all of those kinds of things. And you see lots of non-religious organizations and, um, and scholars and writers addressing these kinds of human needs. So the political part of it is certainly one issue, but also the day-to-day -day lived experience of people still calls on these kinds of engagement that go beyond the political and go beyond the institutional. Ibu Patel, do you worry that an increase in secularization that we're seeing in these surveys, that it actually will negatively impact the country? I mean, the answer to that is yes, absolutely. And huh. Siobhan and Sammy, you know, their, their, their identity choices deserve all the respect and dignity in the world. And I'm, I very, I'm pained and saddened and hurt when uh, people experience religious violence or conflict or prejudice uh, um, uh, because they're gay or uh, because they're Shia in a Sunni country or, or Baha'i in a predominantly Muslim country. I think that's terrible. Right. Let me just be clear about that. I think that that is really terrible. And, you know, six of the nine refugee resettlement agencies in the United States are faith based. 
So there's a reasonable chance that, that Sami's family, which escaped religious violence and persecution in Bosnia and Iraq, were resettled by the Episcopalian Refugee Service or the Lutheran Refugee Service or the Hebrew Immigrant uh, Aid Society. In fact, the reason we have a refugee resettlement policy in the United States at all is because faith-based refugee resettlement agencies advocated for one after World War II. And I, I just don't know how we're going to replace 130,000 congregations involved in addiction recovery work or 120,000 congregations involved in employment training. And I guess theoretically it's possible, right? But one of the very interesting things to me is that the liberal ideals that I hold around refugee resettlement, around caring for the poor, it is religious communities from across the political spectrum who actually do the work. That doesn't necessarily mean the individuals are better individuals as human beings. It just means that they have come together in these things that have lasted for thousands of years in religious institutions, and they have built hospitals and schools and colleges and social service agencies that stand the test of time. I simply think that that is a sociological fact. And again, if you did the thought experiment, if it was all to disappear tomorrow, I believe that Professor Jessler is a professor at Santa Clara University. That's a Jesuit university. It was built by a religious community. There are 28 Jesuit universities in America. There are 120 universities founded by Methodists. If they all disappeared tomorrow, we would live in a very different nation. Well, Susan writes, you asked a good question. Do you think the religious community should be the ones creating social services for people? I think the government needs to do this. But during the previous administration, the shift became solid that the government shouldn't have to take care of the poor. So the churches took over and can get government tax cuts for it. Kevin writes, I'm a longtime church organist from an Episcopal background, but now practice Unitarian Universalism. We have Christian roots and services that often look like mainline Protestant services on Sundays, but we do not prescribe any set of beliefs. My minister is an atheist and prays daily, maybe not to a God, but certainly as a way of relating to the universe. Noemi writes, I'm one of four and we were raised Catholic, which is common for Mexican-American families. But now that we are all adults, my youngest sibling converted to a form of evangelicalism. Then my oldest sister found a less strict form of Christianity. My other brother identifies as atheist. During the pandemic, I started to stray away from Catholicism out of frustration with their views on abortion. I appreciate this topic because it validated my inclination to leave organized religion. A lot of really interesting points being made here. Elizabeth, did you want to jump in quickly? You know, one of the things I, I, I agree with with Ibu, you know, there have been times when um, things have happened in the United States and I've woken up in the morning and thought, oh, my goodness, without the social infrastructure that religions provide, how will this be addressed? Um, and so, you know, the thought experiment that he suggested is is important to think through. But there's another question I think that, that we need to raise. One of the reasons that religions have been able to um, fill this space in, in the culture historically um, in the United States and more broadly in the West and elsewhere in the world is that they've had tremendously close relationships um, with governments over time historically. And so you have to ask the question, if it wasn't an overnight thing, um, but if we um, made a shift to say that the government will support 
um, in, a, in the same way, other kinds of organizations, other, other groups um, that are doing this kind of work or of religions, uh, religious institutions started thinking about, and this is a lot of the, the work that Interfaith Youth Corps does about ways to collaborate, not only with other religious groups, but with other non-religious groups. And we're starting to see that. Um, then we can shift the infrastructure. Um, right. And so it's not mm. a matter of is it religious or is it secular? It's how are we all working together to um, achieve common um, goals of care for humanity and care for the planet um, and, and all of those kinds of things. And so we may not. You know, I think we sometimes create this binary that says either it's religion and religion is bad and the secular is good or, or vice versa. But I think the combination, and, and again, I, I just want to lift up um, the work that, that Ibo's done with Inter Interfaith Youth Corps, the, the real challenge is how do we create new conversations, new ways of, yes. of addressing yes. human needs? You know, one of the things the philosopher Charles Taylor talked about is that people who are no longer affiliated with religion are not necessarily becoming secular. They're maybe looking for a third way. Elizabeth and what Dres is that third way? Elizabeth Drescher is an adjunct associate professor of religious studies at Santa Clara University. Ibu Patel is founder and executive director of Interfaith Youth Corps. And you're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. I want to dig into that some more, Elizabeth, but let me just take one call from Julie in San Carlos, who's been waiting. Hi, Julie. Thanks. Hi, good morning. Uh, love this topic, and I, I thought I'd just share my own story about um, just how personal this journey really is for each and every one of us. I, I grew up with um, my mom's Catholic, my dad's Muslim, and I'm gay. Uh, and so <laughs> I, went, I went through my 20s, 30s, and 40s really searching um, for my identity. I am a confirmed Catholic, but honestly, I'm going to just be honest with everyone— I didn't think it was cool to be a Christian, and um, I COVID for a lot of us really shifted our perspectives. And I was looking for a vetted organization where I could find hope, love, and peace. And so I went back to to the Catholic Church. One of my friends, and she and I both identify as progressive politi politically. She was really disappointed, and she asked me, you know, are aren't you intelligent? So um, I don't really talk to her much anymore, but the long and short of it is that um, I'm back uh, as a practicing Christian, and I just feel so much hope. And, and by the way, I'm a mom, and I just had to make a difficult choice to leave the Roman Catholic Church and switch to the Episcopal Church for their sake. Hmm. And I'll just end on this, that... Um, you know, for any parents out there who are wondering, you know, should I get my kids into organized religion? Um, I know everyone's experience is different, and, and, and some may be even borderline abuse. Um, but if it's the right organization, it can't hurt. I, I thank my parents for giving me this gift because I really needed it now. And so um, just something to think about as a parent. Uh, Julie, thanks. I appreciate you sharing, sharing your story. Um... Another listener writes, I'm a devout Christian surrounded by several similarly self-described Christians of various denominations, both Catholic and, like myself, Protestant. Despite my non-church attendance as a disabled 69-year-old, I listen to religious programming on the radio several times a week, including all-day Sabbath and pray multiple times a day. 
I do want to dig into this question, Ibu Patel, of that, that Elizabeth Drescher was getting at, which is this question of, while we have been talking about the increasing percentage of the U.S. population that identifies as nuns, atheists, agnostic, or not affiliated with any religious organization, we are still predominantly a religious society in the U.S., um, just 63% alone identifying as Christian. So I do think there is this really important question of how we engage with each other. Um, and, and I know that's what you work on at Interfaith Youth Corps. What are your thoughts on that, about how we interact and the healthiest way to do that as a society? That's, you know, so yeah. smart and generous with her comments. And, and I love what the last the last caller said. Said also, you know, just on the last caller briefly, look, I, I went through several years of my life when I, I was, uh, uh, it wasn't alienated from religion. I just never thought about it. And then I came across the work and writing of Dorothy Day. I was uh, um, uh, an activist and, uh, you know, still an activist now, I suppose. Uh, but I was, you know, kind of a... Um, an anger-based activist in college, and I was burning myself out. I, I was raging against the system more than I was loving people. And somebody said to me, have you, have you heard of Dorothy Day and the Catholic Worker Movement? And it just changed my life. This woman who built this movement where, uh, uh, made up of what she called houses of hospitality, which would all have a Christ room uh, because Jesus was the stranger. And anytime somebody shows up at your door in need, they would open the door and that person would stay in their house. And there are hundreds of houses around the country that are inspired by this. Dorothy Day spent 50 years living in St. Joseph's house uh, in, in New York City. And I was just so blown away and inspired by that. Uh, and, and I just wanna point out that at the heart of religion, for me, is that it's inspiring. It inspires people to be better than they might otherwise be. Of course, it inspires some people to be worse than they might otherwise be but inspires a lot of people to be better than the other was might be. And I think that that's encoded in faith. And so when the Quran says that, you know, we created you to be nothing but a special mercy upon the world, we created you to be the uh, uh, Abd and Halifa, the servant and vicegerent of, of God, and your job is to steward God's diverse creation. I just find that inspiring. And I find it hugely inspiring in our society that groups of people come together and they build institutions out of their faith commitment that serve everyone. And quickly, Elizabeth Drescher, we just have 10 seconds, but answering your question about how we find that third way potential or how we engage with each other. Um, I think people are building it. I, I, I mentioned the Black Lives Matter movement before. Some people draw on the Black church tradition to inspire that. Some people see that as entirely non-religious, but they come together to make change in the world. Well, Elizabeth Drescher, thanks so much for joining us. Also, my thanks to you, Ibu Patel, and also our earlier guests, Gregory Smith, Siobhan Taylor, and Sammy L. Asadi. Thanks to our listeners for sharing their thoughts and to Dan Zoll for producing the segment, This is Forum. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. 
Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.